0: I wrote that letter, it was an open letter to dreamers, and I wrote that because it was was the message that I wish someone had written me when I was in the midst of failing in New York, when I was deciding pretty much to give up, when I thought, well, I, I should give up, I should not do this. It was the letter that I wish I would have read as those 41 rejections were coming in. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who have journeys similar to mine. And it is tough. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. It's tough and it's hard and the odds aren't great. And I know that because until very recently, I was out there, I was, you know, experiencing that. But it's just as important to have the idea that it can happen. It's tough, but why is that the only opinion that carries weight? Why is that the only voice that gets a say? Mm. Why not you?
1: Welcome to Best Sellers. I'm Natalie Jamieson.
2: And I'm Phil Williams, and I'm afraid that people of a certain age... This episode comes from first class return to Dottingham, please. Remember that advert for tunes? We're both like <laughs> full of colds, and we're both blaming our offspring for giving us these colds. And they're slightly differently manifested. I think yours is more chesty, mine's very much nasy, sinusy, headachey. But um yeah. and actually, like I thought you sounded great until you messaged me and said, I've also got a cold. I didn't know, I couldn't tell. <laughs> uh, but it's more like the kind of detri- overall detrimental effect in it, where you yeah. think. So hopefully we don't sound too like bugged up or like that in this yeah, episode. Yeah, except to be really, really we, annoying yeah, to you know, listen that, to. So I don't think we do.
1: No, uh, and also I actually wanted to say quite early on this week just a huge thank you to anybody who's listening and who is also uh, sharing this. And if you really enjoy the book recommendations that we talk about and the authors that we speak to, share it with other people that you think will also enjoy these conversations because that's kind of the best way I think for us to know who's listening and know who's enjoying what we've got to say is to kind of build up our tribe that way so yeah do share it with somebody that you think will like it too
2: yeah exactly because the thing is these conversations don't date you know if you come to this in a year's time it will still be good it will still yeah. be a good chat and the, you'll still be able to discover a book you haven't read yet so definitely so today tj newman what an incredible story uh, the second book is called drowning the first book was called falling they're both set on board aircraft because she's former cabin staff And she's had this rollercoaster ride from struggling, 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 struggling to all of a sudden overnight success probably is a useless phrase to use in it because it's never overnight. But there's a suddenness, there's an abruptness, isn't there, to the level of deal that was done and to the level of fame she's about to encounter.
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, no spoilers, as always, included in these chats. But uh, if you do have an aversion to musical theatre, I do mention that once or twice in this conversation and I make no apologies for it. (laughs) So over to Phil for the intro.
2: Our guest today on Best Sellers is Hot Property. She's in high demand and it is only book two. All right, it's It's been an incredible journey. When I first spoke to TJ Newman about her debut, Falling, she had spent most of the time writing it while she was still cabin crew. And now she spent most of her time fighting Hollywood studios off for her attention because the new book, I'm right in saying TJ, the new book sold to Hollywood before it was even out. Right.
0: That's correct.
2: Welcome to the podcast.
0: I, I still can't believe anything that you just said, like movie deal book. It's,
2: mm. but it's all true, right? Not, I didn't make any of that up. Did I?
0: It, sometimes I ask myself that every day. I'm like, am I making this up? This is too, too wild to be true, but no, it's, it's true. Two books, two movie deals. It's, it's incredible.
2: So the new one's called Drowning. Before we get to it, can you bring people up to speed on your life? Just give us a, a potted, how many years ago were you still full-time cabin crew? When did you start writing? What's been the transformation?
0: I've written my entire life. I've been a lifelong reader and writer. Uh, I had the first idea for my first book when i was a flight attendant and i flew for virgin america for 10 years had the idea for that one on a plane wrote it on the plane um on the you know back of catering bills and passenger manifests and cocktail napkins and uh tried to get an agent for that one and uh 41 agents rejected me for that manuscript and the 42nd agent I sent it to was my one and only. Yes. And that, I think that's
2: really worth emphasizing because up until that, I thought the record was JK Rowling, who I think had 25 rejections. So you've smashed that out of the water. (laughs)
0: I'm not sure JK has any records that I've smashed anywhere. I'm pretty sure she, <laughs> it, you know what? That may be the only one that I can best her on is like a bigger failure than than her. So <laughs> sure. she's kind of one-on-one, but, um, but yeah. But isn't that- it
2: interesting Like jokes aside, doesn't it show, I know that pe- a lot of people say, well, you need to stick with it. If you really want to do it, you've got to stick with it. But doesn't it show that there was nothing wrong with your story? It's just timing. And you use the word failure, but you didn't fail. You just didn't get signed. But the minute you got signed, look how it's exploded for you.
0: It's been a, it's been a wild ride since I did get that one and only yes. Mm. Um, and I do think that it's a matter of timing and the right person. I believed in that story and you said they're not failures. Sure. It's, it's the journey, but the journey only feels good at the end. Once, you know, it ends happily in the middle of it, those feel like failures. I didn't know there would be a success. So they definitely felt like failures as I was going along, But it really was just waiting for that right person, that one person who would see what I saw, which was the potential for what that story could be and how it could connect with readers. And as soon as I found the person who saw what I saw, everything started to fall in place from there.
1: I also really like the serendipity of the number 42. If anybody has read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or knows that film with the significance of that number, right?
0: Absolutely. And which, yes, the significance of that that number, it's also Jackie Robinson's baseball number that's retired now and the entire MLB. It also, too, someone just pointed this out to me and I never realized it. So the title of this book is Drowning the Rescue of... Flight 1421 which is the number 42 in between two ones which I did not do on purpose and did not realize until about a week ago when someone wrote to me and was like oh I love that little tribute you did to your agent and the whole like 42 thing I was like my what I did where how I it's it's a crazy magic number for me and anytime I do a lottery ticket it's the powerball number
1: (laughs) yeah well I feel like you've already won the lottery right with the (laughs) Exactly. i don't waste
0: much money because that's just getting greedy at that point yeah
2: and you mentioned baseball i just saw you through with the first pitch
0: yes i love your team that is that is my team the arizona diamondbacks i'm born and raised in phoenix arizona and it was surreal to be on the field and to look around at the crowd it was a huge game it was sunday it was against the red Sox, and they put like you know the cover of the book and my picture up on the big screen and wow yeah. And I did okay. I made it over the plate. Definitely wasn't a strike, but you know what? I didn't hit the mascot. So I felt like it was <laughs> nice nice in between.
1: I wanted to ask, I know that from having read your book as well, there's a lot of work that goes on that we don't see when we're flying as passengers on a plane. But um, from your cabin crew flight attendant perspective, when you would, there must've been other people that you'd seen writing or trying to like write novels or things on on planes. Did you ever kind of we have a curious to ask them or we'll get speaking about writing before you kind of really fully fledged your ideas?
0: Oh, interesting. You know, flight attendants are very fascinating in that like a lot of us have second jobs. I know a lot of flight attendants that are also real estate agents or, you know, um, uh, writers, as you said. So, so yeah, it's a great job to be able to kind of, because once you go home on your days off, you're off. You don't take work home from you. So mm. if you've got five days off, you know that's when a lot of people go to a second job or do some sort of creative pursuit, like like writing. Um, when I wrote Falling, though, I didn't tell anybody that I was doing it. So I actually didn't have a lot of those conversations about like, oh, this is my process and this is what I'm doing because I didn't tell anyone that I was writing this book. I think mm-hmm. because I before my failures with uh, trying to get an agent, I had, I tried to be a, a Broadway actress. I'd moved to New York and tried to make it, you know, in New York. And since we're not talking about my next show, you can assume how well that went. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, fresh off that failure, it's like when I started writing again, I, I was embarrassed and I kind of felt like I'd used up all my creative uh, risk-taking publicly with that, you know, attempt. So I didn't tell anybody I was doing it. So nobody at work knew that I was writing this book. Nobody at work um, was aware that this was even in my life. And so when when the announcement came out that I had a 2 book deal and it was seven figures and I'd written a book and all this, like everyone was writing me and calling me and saying, you know, oh my God, congratulations. This is so incredible. You wrote a book? like nobody nobody knew this about about my life and it's actually funny I had a a launch event last night in Phoenix at the bookstore that I used to work at and I had several flight attendant and pilot friends who came to the event and it was funny because one of them I hadn't seen in years and the pilot came up to me and he was like you know I look back on it and I'm like you did ask a lot of questions. Like when you would come up into the <laughs> cockpit, like you were always asking questions. And I just figured you were like really curious and were maybe, you know, thinking about becoming a pilot, you know, but you were always, I remember that very distinctly that you were always asking questions. And I was like, yeah, man, I was, I was working. I was <laughs> getting my information from you. Yeah, I know. You and all the hundreds of other pilots every day. You thought I just wanted to talk about flying. No, I was, I was working the story out.
2: Why, why did you use the word embarrassed there before? Yeah. You know when you were talking about your creative uh, pursuits, because I think it's really, I think it's quite common, and I think it's really important that we try and deal with that. Otherwise, it, it can be discouraging for people to pursue what they want to pursue. Where did where did the embarrassment come from?
0: I think the embarrassment came from you know you you have high hopes, you have big dreams, you tell everyone that you love in your life, all your friends, all your family like I'm going to pursue it and they support you in that and everyone is cheering you on and you go out there and you don't get a thing. And for me it was embarrassing. For me it was embarrassing to leave New York and move back home to Arizona and move back into, you know, my childhood bedroom and and sleep in my twin bed, you know, as a 20 something you know, who's looking at her life going, well, I have a degree in musical theater and the whole musical theater community just told me I wasn't going to cut it. So what do I do now? And it was some, you know, it was some soul searching. It was, it was some hard moments, you know, in that time. And I, and I think a lot of people can relate to that, um, that feeling of putting yourself out there and, and not getting what you want. The important part to me is that you don't let that be the final say though. And, Mm -hmm. and I use that as fuel to keep going. And for me, the way that I could sort of comfortably get back to a place where I could publicly put myself out there again, was just to do it on my own terms, to write for myself. When I wrote that first book, like I said, nobody knew I was writing it. Like my family didn't even know I was writing it until I was almost finished with the book. And. That was the way that I was able to do it because I told myself, it's just you in the paper. No one's going to read this. If you don't want to, it never has to leave your computer. You are writing this story for yourself and no one else. So who cares if it's bad? Who cares if it's good? Just write. Just write the story you need to write. And so that was how I was able to um, get to that place that I was comfortable taking those kind of creative risks again. again. Yeah,
1: I want to hear more about the musical theater stuff as well because I love musical theater, but I think it's... (laughs) It's also interesting that, um, you know, so often in society, it's like the end goal is deemed a successful thing, whereas sometimes if we flipped that and was like that, actually, if you still love to like sing and dance, like you should be able to do that and enjoy how you do that. It doesn't kind of matter if it wasn't on a Broadway show or do you know what I mean? That It's often we kind of see the end thing as the only way to validate having done something and it shouldn't really be that way.
0: I could not agree with that more. And I have to tell you that, you know, when I look back at at the first publication of my first book, there was, you know, and you look at like, well, what are the marquee moments, right? What are the moments that stand out? And of course, like the the moment I got the call that I had made the New York Times bestseller list, you know, and the moment that I signed, you know, with with the publisher and I had my actual first, you know, publishing, like those, those moments are huge. But I'll tell you what maybe top of the list, maybe, maybe top of the list was me alone at three in the morning at a Kinko's, which is a, a, like a, a paper printing place over here. I don't know if you have them there, but it's a, it's a printer place. They're open 24 hours. And I went at three in the morning and printed off the first draft of the first book that I wrote. That moment, I have a picture where the manuscript is in my hand. I'm in my car and I've got the stack of papers on my hand like this. That moment, three in the morning by myself with a book that I wanted to write and a story that I wanted to write, there was a deep feeling of pride and and knowing that I'd done what I want to do. And if it never went anywhere from there, I still would have felt like a million bucks. I would have felt like I set, I did what I set out to do. And I think it's so important to have those moments. I wrote that book initially for myself. And once I had the story, then it became a, I don't know if I can, if I can edit this, if I can get this right, if I can tell this story the way that I think it can be told, I think this is really going to connect with people. And that's you know, that's sort of what kept me forward. But you're you're completely right. It has to start internally. It has to be something for you and not for anybody else.
2: So drowning, we should set up because that's obviously the build up to book one, which is falling. So drowning, um, in essence, is that the flight's barely left its um origin point and something happens and it, it's starting to go down. And aside from it being like a well, I thought it was like speed but on speed. And that's what I thought it was like when I was reading. Really here. And, and so, it, so it goes down into the water and certain people survive in this kind of capsule, obviously, which is the plane's body. But offset against that, there's a domestic um, drama as well, isn't there? There are two members of a family on this plane and a, a, the third member is not on the flight. And how important was that to you, TJ, that you wanted to include, you know, what is essentially it's an action piece, but there's also – massive heart to it as well rather than it's just it's not pure adrenaline
0: absolutely that was that was crucial and that became apparent pretty much almost instantly as soon as i started putting pen to paper you know it's it's the spectacle of it all you know plane crashes and explosions and a plane with people trapped inside the bottom of the ocean teetering on the edge of an undersea cliff like that's awesome but that's just the setup because that is not going to sustain readers attention for 300 pages They have to care about who the people are in that situation, because the stakes aren't there if you don't care if the people are going to make it or not. So so I front loaded kind of the spectacle of it, the setup of it. I front loaded it in the very beginning of the book. And then basically after you get through the first first handful of pages and the plane is underwater, the people are inside, the rescue mission starts, the entire story is really focused on these people it's it's a survival story it's how do we get these people out of this plane because these are their backstories and this is why we care i knew i had to dig into to these people's lives because that's why we care like when i think about apollo 13 you know i don't think really about like of course we think about the big incident and then houston we have a problem but Mm. like when i think of apollo 13 i think of you know tom hanks with his thumb over the moon thinking about his wife you know in mount maryland i think about his son, you know, when he finds out his daddy's in trouble and he says, you know, was it the door, you know, referencing the last, you know, crisis that happened that several astronauts died from. It's like those moments are what make you care about a story. And I knew that if this story wasn't focused on that, on the people involved in this. How difficult a trick
2: is that for you to do as a writer when quite early on you're introducing us to a number of passengers, And you've got to make sure you've given them all something, a trait that stands out so that we remember them as readers. And I felt you did that really well, but I wondered how tricky it is to do because there are at least seven or eight, maybe more that we need to retain.
1: And can I just say, this is where the point in the conversation, I want TJ to be like, well, actually in a chorus line, this brilliant musical theatre piece that you may not (laughs) have seen, there are many characters. (laughs) And I drew from how well they did it in that.
0: (laughs) That is such a good uh, research reference point. I wish I would have thought of that and gone back and really studied that because you're completely and totally right. Oh, wow. That's great. Five, six, seven. Eight. No, exactly. okay. we, didn- we can't go down too far. This will become dinner and a show so fast if we go down. The Save that for when we
1: meet in person and we can just like shout show tunes at each other and have a drink
0: <laughs> i'm already choreographing dance numbers in my mind that we can do little duets natalie i can't <laughs> so good. wait so good this is, great. this is great um you know maybe it is for my for my musical theater training oh that's actually really interesting i've never thought about that my favorite roles that i did you know in the, in the shows that i that i was in in college and in my you know attempt at a professional theater life um I loved being a part of the chorus. I loved being in that like massive ensemble where everybody is working together towards the same thing. I also love singing in a choir. I still sing in a choir and I I love that idea of everybody has their own individual, individual aspect that they're bringing to it, but we're all doing the same thing together. And that's interesting. I never realized that that's kind of, you know, may cross over into writing of these books, which are big ensemble characters with, with each person with the big, rich backstory. And I realized recently too, that I think my flight attendant training helped with that in that every single flight, I get a hundred, some brand new strangers that I know nothing about, but as a flight attendant, I'm trained to observe, right? Like I, as a flight attendant, I'm trained to constantly have situational awareness and be looking at every passenger going, does that person look sick? You know, is is this going to be some sort of a medical emergency once we're up there? Is this person a threat? Is this person, why is that woman crying? What is happening here? So we're constantly evaluating passengers and seeing, you know, what we can gauge from what we observe. And I think that that sort of, you know, character study for for lack of a better way to describe it is, is you know, what I did every single day for 10 years with 100 some people every day.
1: Yeah, I also think that's something that's really undervalued, that skill, because like reading the room is something that you had to do every day. And I'm surprised there aren't more incidents that we hear about of things going wrong when that isn't judged well.
0: Exactly. And maybe it's because you do judge it well, you know, that that because that's how we're trained. We're always trained to think like if you can spot, especially during boarding, you know, if you can spot something when you're on the ground, when you can still handle it, does this passenger appear to be intoxicated? Because I would much rather handle that on the ground and get them off of the plane than to deal with it once we are trapped in a metal tube miles up in the air, traveling hundreds of miles an hour. And that's also why you see a lot of incidents happen during boarding you know when you're still on the ground because that is the flight attendants recognizing like we're probably going to have a problem with this passenger we need to sort of address this before we have this situation happening at altitude
2: shall we before we get any further shall we get you to read a bit and then it kind of establishes where we are with this excellent breakneck speed novel that you've created
0: I would love to, and I'm going to read just the very beginning of the book, the first page, because if I go too terribly much deeper than that, we're hitting spoiler territory. (laughs) Right. Will Kent opened his eyes just in time to see the engine explode. His arms shot up to protect the passenger seated at the window, but his daughter Shannon didn't seem to notice. The 11-year-old girl just watched the flames spewing out of the back of the engine's tail cone and uttered an uneasy, Whoa. Will sat up straight and looked over the top of the seats. The emergency exit was two rows up. A flight attendant sat there in a rear-facing jump seat staring at the passengers. He could just make out her name bar. Molly. Will caught her eye. Molly didn't say a thing. She didn't have to. The aircraft shook. Panic gripped the cabin as everyone craned for a look out the windows. Flames. Chunks of metal ripping off, flying by. Will leaned over Shannon for a better view. The engine was on fire. Parts of the wing were shredded. Below the plane, crystal clear turquoise water. Shannon looked to her dad. Why aren't we turning back to Honolulu? Will had been wondering the same thing.
1: Dun, dun, dun. What I also really like, just to kind of pick up on what we were saying before you read that opening paragraph as well, is that you kind of set it up so well but it's not just reading the room and those people in the room it's how you judge which people are going to follow and choose who is a voice of authority that they're going to put their trust in which is something that you play with beautifully in this story were there particular incidents that you can remember from being on flights where you saw that happening and you can kind of see you know the the kind of mood shift because somebody says something or somebody believes somebody
0: It's really wild when you're on a flight because everyone's in their own world. Everyone is doing their own thing. No one's thinking about the fact that they are, you know, as I just said, in a metal tube, miles up in the air, you know, flying at hundreds of miles an hour. No one thinks about that until something goes bump. And you can Mm -hmm. feel the literal shift in energy when something goes bump and everybody's attention. Just narrows in, and everyone is suddenly aware of exactly where they are and what's at stake. It's really quite a fascinating um, thing to witness. Um, and I think that's kind of, you know, part of why I, I write these types of stories and why I do this, because I'm fascinated by that. It was such a visceral feeling to see that and to have all of that directed at you to suddenly be on the receiving end of it. And as a flight attendant to then go, it's on me. If we, if we evacuate, if we have to do something, it's on me. Everyone is looking to me for what to do next. It's a, it's, it's really um, yeah. It's a trip.
2: I am mindful like you are mindful of spoilers. So I don't give too much away, but um, quite early on in the book you let us know in the narrative that roughly only 20% of the ocean had been explored. And then in the acknowledgements, you thank Phoenix Scuba for your scuba certification. So I'm putting two and two together. I want to know, how much actual ocean research did you physically do?
0: I got scuba certified. I did. I knew For this book? Was, for this book. For research for this book, I got scuba certified because I knew that there was no way I would be able to write about breathing underwater without having done it because it's as foreign an activity as walking on the moon and, and diving and the underwater world is pretty much this entire book. Like the whole, everything dramatic happens, you know, underwater. So I knew that if I didn't have that firsthand experience, it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't read right. And, and I'm so thrilled that I got it. You know, there's a, there's a passage in the book where, uh, one of the divers is sort of recollecting his very first dive when he was you know a teenager and what that felt like and and how he experienced you know breathing underwater for the first time and that was my experience that was literally just exactly how it felt to me you know when i went down and and had that shock and awe and and thrill and fear um you know of doing that because honestly it's it's like being in a plane you know i've said multiple times it's like you know the margin of error on a plane is small. And there's not, you know, much here. We're not supposed to humans aren't supposed to be miles up going that fast. Like it's it's not normal. Humans also are not supposed to be breathing underwater. So if something goes wrong, in that set of circumstances as well. These are high stakes locations to have something go wrong.
1: Yeah, I think it's hard not to think of when you're reading this as well. And I know that you love an action movie to to have the Poseidon adventure in your head. I mean, it's a great book as well, but it was a book book first by Paul Gallico, I think it was, and then made into a couple of films. Was that kind of conscious when you were writing and were you trying to play with some of the the thrill of that story too?
0: You know, I drew a lot from all the disaster epics. I'm a sucker for a disaster epic. (laughs) You know, I love a rescue story. I love a... You know, an underdog, you know, or are they going to make it race mm-hmm. against the clock? Like I cannot get enough of those kind of stories. And there's so many good ones out there to to sort of draw inspiration from um ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances on the worst day of their life. Mm. That's really, you know, both of my books so far have been just that because i'm fascinated by this idea of what would you or i do in these mm-hmm. situations what would a normal person do in this situation cuz as much as i love to you know watch apollo 13 i'm not going to the moon i'm not an astronaut <laughs> you know i'm not an international spy i'm not you know going to ride a dragon all these things that are amazing that i love there's still a little bit more of a distance between me and the character because these things just aren't in the cards but when you read a story where you could feasibly be any of the characters, it narrows the distance between fact and fiction and and it shrinks the the distance between you and the character, so that when you're asking, what's he going to do? You're also asking, what would I do? And I just think that makes the story more alive.
2: Well, that's made into the story, hasn't it? Because there's a, I get it, there's no spoiler in this, but there is a scene where Ruth mentions titanic and then they all the characters discuss how often how many times they've seen titanic it really made me laugh that that scene because um i then thought so how many times did tj go and see this movie then because when i went to see it right uh honestly no word of a like you know it's really long we got about two-thirds of the way through and the screen broke down and then they were like well we can give you a ticket to come back again i said oh i've got to go and do i've i've literally missed 20 minutes I've literally got to go and watch the first two hours and whatever again, just to catch the Which next is trailer. fine. But even though we all know how it ends, right?
0: <laughs> I mean, there's no spoiler, you know, with Titanic, even if exactly. you haven't seen it. You know exactly. the boat's going down. Everybody exactly. knows yeah. the boat's going down. But um, <laughs> yeah, that, how many times, that is me the book you know that it talks about how many times I saw it I saw it six times in the theater um that's back in the days when you know my parents had to drive me to the theater and I had to use my allowance money to buy the tickets and I saw it six times in the theater there are easter eggs for for Titanic throughout this entire book it's one of my favorite movies of all time and it was constantly on top of mind as I was writing this book so there's a lot of like tiny little easter eggs that that if you've seen the movie as many times as I have, uh, you you may pick up on.
1: I think I picked up on a few of them, but I want to reread it now, knowing that <laughs> they are fully in there because I've also seen Titanic many times. Um Yeah. I love that you did Natalie, that. You
0: and I are going to get along just fine. We're just going to watch Titanic and then take like <laughs> and an intermission and do a few musical numbers. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I can't wait. Love it. So good.
1: Um, I also really like, um, uh, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but because it just popped into my mind there that you wrote a really beautiful essay for Deadline. Oh,
2: yeah. I'm just looking at it right now. I'm glad you mentioned that.
1: Yeah about kind of a letter to dreamers saying that, you know, if you, because again, I think it's that thing where we, you've told us about your success and the failure before you got the success, but even so you have had these incredible six figure deals and, you know, people wanting you and loving your stories now, and it can feel like it's overnight. And for people trying to do that, it can feel still so unattainable if you're not getting that, but you wanted to kind of say that, it's okay to dream and to do that because that's what you were doing before it got to this point
0: absolutely I wrote that letter it was an open letter to dreamers and I wrote that because it was it was the message that I wish someone had written me you know when I was needing it when I was in the midst of failing in New York when I was deciding pretty much to give up when I thought, well, I I should give up. I should not do this. It was the letter that I wish I would have read, you know, as those 42 rejections were, or 41 rejections were coming in. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who have journeys similar to mine. And it is tough. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's tough and it's hard and the odds aren't great. And I know that because until very recently, I was out there. I was, you know, (laughs) experiencing that. But it's just as important to have the idea that it can happen. It's tough, but why is that the only opinion that carries weight? Why is that the only voice, you know, the doubting, pessimistic? It's hard, it's tough. Why is that the only voice that gets a say? Mm. Why not you? Mm. Why not you? Somebody's going to break through. Why not you? And I feel like that's a message I needed. And I thought there may be other dreamers out there who needed to hear that message. And based Based on the reception to it, I'm telling you, it came out weeks ago and I'm still getting calls or uh, DMS and, and messages and emails all the time of people saying I was going to quit. I was giving up. And then I read that piece. I printed it out. It's hanging above my desk and I am going to keep going. And that response is overwhelming. As someone who has like motivational things tacked up above her desk, who has taken inspiration from so many other sources to know that something I wrote is being that for somebody else and that they're not giving up on their dreams and they are going to keep going. Uh, it's just the most incredible feeling. And I can't wait to experience that art. Because what if I, we wouldn't be having this conversation if I, if I you know, if I had given up. It would mm-hmm. it would have been just as easy for me to have to have given up and not be here now. And and I just I hope that there's creators out there who don't give up because I, I wanna read their books. I want to watch their movies. I wanna I wanna experience their art.
2: So what we'll do is we'll put a link in the blurb. So when you where you get your podcast from, the blurb that comes with this episode, I'll put a link in there at the bottom. So if you want to read that essay that TJ wrote, you can read it there. You'll be able to click on that and it'll be really easy for you. I think I'm right in saying that you've got the same agent as Adrian McKinty. I'm right in saying that. And and Adrian was driving an Uber, wasn't he? Before he broke through with his kind of big book and big, big deal. How economically, because that's the, the bit I think people struggle with. They go, well, I don't, I can dedicate myself to my dream, but I've got bills to pay. How tough did that side of your life get?
0: I mean, that's totally fair. And that's why it took me so long to write my first book. That's why, you know, because I was working full time, I had a full life. I I didn't quit my day job. I just worked this into into my job and then on my days off, I wrote and edited and on my layovers at the hotel, I wrote and edited and I just cobbled together 5 minutes here and 5 minutes there and you know, I do think that that's something that that we limit ourselves on. I think we have this magical thought a lot of the time where it's like, well, because I can't do it full time, I do have a job, you know, I can only devote five, 10, you know, half an hour here, you know, before I've got to go pick the kids up from school, or I've got to, you know, go do this or go do that. That's how I wrote my entire first book was stealing five to 10 minutes here and five to 10 minutes there. And you do that enough and you've got a book by the end of it. And I'll tell you what, as someone now who has the blessing and insane privilege of being a full-time writer. It's sometimes hard to sit down now that I do have all that time. Sometimes I put, you know, limitations on myself to say like, all right, you only have a half an hour to do this. And then you have to go do something so that you're forced to have that deadline. So I say, turn your limitations into an asset. How do you figure out those, those restrictions that you do have? How do you make that work for you? You didn't, only we have to have to didn't we
2: have this conversation at the end of the last episode with Mark Biddingham <laughs> yeah. Weren't we? Because so, yeah. so T.J. Natalie and I are both trained journalists. We are career journalists, and we were saying that we're. If you give us a long deadline, we're crap. If you tell us it needs doing it in an hour, we're on it. And I yeah. think that com- that comes from the day job, right?
0: Absolutely. I saw a writer um that that put something up that they had they got a little they went on like Amazon or whatever and got a cheap little keyboard that like folds up and is like just a little bit bigger than their phone that bluetooth connects to their phone and when they sit in the car park waiting for their kids to come out of school when they sit in that line and wait for them the like you know 15 minutes that it mm-hmm. takes that's when he writes. He writes during that 15 minute thing on his little keyboard on his phone. And that's how he's writing right now, because that's the only time that he has. And I thought that's exactly right. That's 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 brilliant. And he probably in those 15 minutes put more ink on paper than he would have if he had three hours to do it, because you're right. Give me a deadline and I'm going to get it done. Give me open ended time frames and, you know, I I will come up with every excuse to not get it done. I did have written
1: down as one of my questions. Do you procrastinate? Because I think we all do. But again, that doesn't get talked about that much. Actually, just how much time we can waste if we do have a lot of time to devote on the thing we're supposed to be doing.
0: I'm getting better at it because I think especially, you know, there's pressure with the follow up. And I think I was letting for a while, you know, I was letting that pressure dictate how I was spending my time because, boy, it's easier if you're afraid to do something Mm-hmm. It is far easier to come up with an excuse not to do it than if it's something that you're feeling very confident about moving forward with. So I basically had to get pretty disciplined with myself and just not give myself another option because at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's getting your rear in the chair and it's writing. And sometimes the the pages will be good and sometimes they'll be bad, but you have to put in the time. That's all there is to it. I think there's a, there's a great quote, you know, the muse, the muse will find you, but she has to find you working. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: exactly. And the uh, essay that Natalie just referred back to in Deadline, was, was it that piece or was it another I've read about you where you said that you'd actually, have you served the person who's going to direct your movie as a member of Cabin Crew?
0: It was it was a producer. And yes, that is accurate. So, you know, one of the people that I was on one of those Zoom calls with, I was it, it was just it crazy to be looking at the Zoom and just be thinking, I've served you in first class. (laughs) This is absolutely (laughs) wild that somehow this world has turned upside down. And now you are pitching to me your idea for what you would do with my book. For your
2: story that lived in your brain.
0: Exactly. And, and I did think you tell them that, at the
2: time on the Zoom, did you say I've served you in first class?
0: No, I I did not say it then. And it's like, <laughs> I look back, it's like my, I was based in Los Angeles and my favorite route was LA, New York. That's all I did just back and right. forth, back and forth. And I think back on it now. And I'm like, I was working on that book the whole time up there. And I know that there were people that I didn't, you know, that I didn't recognize their face or their name who are, you know, somehow involved with something like, it's just weird how all the little you know serendipitous things like that have happened
2: so how much can we talk about the movie
0: the bidding war and the process to get it is about as far as i can go after that i always get nervous there's going to be a knock on the door i've signed so many papers that it's like you know i'm just <laughs> waiting for legal to come and say like yeah remember what you were not supposed to say so.
2: <laughs> but it's, we can say it's the team behind top gun maverick can't we
0: it's actually with Warner Brothers. So they were one of the they were one of the final bidders. The Paramount team, ah, uh, right, okay. was one of the final bidders, which was a crazy moment because look, we've already I saw Titanic in the theaters six times. I saw Top Gun Maverick in the theater eight times. Um, <laughs> when I like a it's movie, right. I like a movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I saw that one in the theater eight times, and it was so funny. Before we went on that call, I said to my agent, "I'm like, hey." Um, don't tell him. Like, <laughs> I, I know I'm a fan of their work and that's cool and all, but like, it's like bordering on like, like fangirl, like it's embarrassing almost like, just don't tell him. And he was like, yeah, no, no, no. I, I want it. That's, that's fine. I'm like, okay, good. So we do this call and the call's going great. And we're getting off the call. And my agent goes, Hey, I just want to say before we, before we get, it, um, I'm really proud of TJ for, for not sort of losing it, not freaking out and telling you how big of a fan. And then he tells them the whole thing. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I am bright red. It's a Zoom. I am bright red. They're loving it. Cause I mean, like, you know, someone's telling <laughs> you that, you know, yeah. the work that they created connected mm. you so deeply that you went to the theater eight separate times to see it. But it was, it was this great moment. And I'm, I'm still kind of mortified, but also thrilled to be able to give that kind of feedback to the people who did make something that was so important to me
1: I'm also like again because in in that uh, article you list the people that were bidding for the movie rights and as you say eventually went to Warner Brothers but you know you, you list these people and and how how do you deal with the professional like world of that I mean obviously it happens all the time that people bid for things and you don't always get stuff but you know these are your heroes and at the end of the day you're like yeah but no
0: I had to basically just shut my brain off from the 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 part of my brain that was freaking out and was mm. going like what is happening and oh my god and who do you think you are and how did you get in this room like all of that sort of like disbelief I just had to kind of shut off and pretend that I knew what I was doing and that these were conversations that you know I should be having because if I think too long and too hard about the fact that I'm talking to Nicole Kidman on a zoom about my book if I really start thinking about that I'm just I'm, gonna I'm just gonna apart. go tell me
1: about Moulin Rouge
0: oh yeah exactly exactly I'm I'm fangirling instantly you know the whole time it was like this very like you know slow simmer underneath the surface where I seemed calm and composed and like internally I'm like like high pitch screaming just non non-stop so I basically had to trick myself into thinking I was cool enough to be on those calls and that I could handle being on those calls
2: how much are you going to be involved with the movie are you going to write the screenplay are you going to be a screenplay writer on it how much of that or are you happy to hand it over we get so many different views from authors who go mm-hmm. no I don't do movies I'll give it to the movie people and other authors go yeah it's my book I'm going to write it for the screen
0: you know, I'm, I have the insane privilege of actually doing one of each. So for Falling, I am adapting the screenplay for Falling, which has been an incredible experience that I have enjoyed so much. It's, it's writing a screenplay is a, is a real high wire act, right? You, you're taking a, a story that takes 300 pages to tell, and you're condensing it down to hundred some pages. You're taking a scene that takes 10, pages to tell and you're turning it into one and you can't lose any of the information and you can only write what the person sees because you know Mm -hmm. to be on the nose it's a moving picture so you Mm -hmm. only get to write what people see it's an incredible challenge that i have loved getting to um to learn it's like learning a new language and it's really really helped my novel writing because it's it's helped hone like a ruthless editing tool in my mind because nothing can go on the page but the story so you you're constantly looking at every single scene every single you know chapter and going what am i actually trying to tell because i don't have time to tell anything but that so you only put the story on the page none of the superfluous filler makes it and it's really changed how i write novels and who's and teaching
2: one, you to do that? How are you learning that?
0: Um, I, you know, it's, it's been a real, um, my agent who's working with me on the script. He is uh, he is a writer himself. He's a screenwriter. His whole background is in film. Um, so I feel like I'm getting a, you know, a, a, I'm going to film school every day that I deal with him. I've also read um scripts. I read a lot of scripts and I'll have the movie on in the background and the script in my lap. And I'll sort ah, of like watch good scene by scene and see how they've interpreted that scene into what you see on the screen.
2: Because sometimes, I mean, I remember hearing Daniel Craig say when he got a first Bond script, that it just said they fight and that was all the scripts. And so then that's up to the interpretation of the director. How long does the fight last? From what angle are you seeing the fight? That, none of that's on the page.
0: Exactly, and there's also, you know, different writers, different screenwriters have different styles. It's really a fascinating, fascinating, um, medium and art. It, it to, you know, to to be able to express because it's, if it's not on the page, you're not going to see it there. But every director wants something different. Every writer has a different way of interpreting this, and even like in the formatting, there's sort of like industry standard ish type stuff, but everybody kind of has their own flair and way to do it as well. It's, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating world that I'm really enjoying, uh, learning about. And then on drowning, I will actually be an executive producer on that. So I'll get my first credit for that.
1: That's really cool. I listened to their script notes podcast, which I imagine you might do too, but they talk a lot about the kind of ins and outs and intricacies of all of that. Um, but I, I wanted to say, what i i kind of went back through drowning after i'd read it because i was fascinated how you end chapters mm-hmm. and how you know to end chapters and i guess that kind of must be coming through in the screenwriting too because sometimes there's a key piece of information that you give out sometimes it's reinforcing a feeling of what's about to or could about be about to happen other times it's like a full on cliffhanger just how you know and get a, a good sense for how to finish a chapter. Because I think as someone who attempts to write as well, that can be really difficult to know when to wrap it up and and move on.
0: That was something that my agent taught me. It was one of the most invaluable tools that I learned during the writing of Falling, which is the hook and the punch out. You know, the first sentence of a chapter is the hook. You hook the reader and to where they have to read the next sentence. And you just keep building upon that. And then the punch out is how do you end it in a way that the reader has no choice but to turn the page and find out what happens next? The hook and the punch out—it was—it was invaluable.
2: Um, you're going to have to punch out very soon, aren't you? Which we know. So um, before you do, uh, tell me this: as an exec producer, will you have a hand in casting? Have you got your family in mind for this picture? <laughs>
0: You know, I don't. I don't write with any actors in mind because that just feels weird, first of all, to be like, you know, oh, I'm going to write in this actor. No, I would never have that kind of uh, that feels weird to even think about that. But also, I feel like a character is played by an actor, not the other way around. So I wrote the characters in my mind and then whoever the, you know, uh, casting directors think is the right person for it, they'll put them in there. And just
1: before we get your recommendations, what are you writing next? Is it still always going to be something that starts in the air? Or are you kind of doing something completely different?
0: I don't know if it'll always be something in the air, because I've got lots of stories I want <laughs> to tell. But the next one I'm writing does involve planes and whew, it's big. It's big. I'm having a ball writing it. And it's fun to be doing the publication process and kind of have it on hold while I'm putting this out and to be in the back of my mind going, oh, I know how to make that seem better. And "Ooh, I know how to do this. So I'm I'm excited to get back to the third book. I know they're going
1: to be watching line, a chorus line. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. It's <laughs> about
2: a chorus line that tours. And it's the first Musical. <laughs> Yeah, Here's up with some recommendations. And I mean, do you get time to read? I know all good writers are good readers, aren't they?
0: Absolutely. And the best, we were talking about that, City of Dreams by Don Winslow. That's mm. one of the best books that I've read so far this year. It's, it's a remarkable book. Um, we should shout
2: now, Don out really, shouldn't we? Because Don's the reason I know you
0: yeah exactly he's the connector he's he's so supportive of so many writers it's it's really um yeah i owe a lot to don um but his book is his book is amazing you know a book also that people if they're liking drowning the perfect storm i read that when i was researching this and it's one of those things where it's like god i forget how good that book is and so i I would recommend the perfect storm
2: natalie's writing them down
1: yeah I am writing it down I am uh, I know the film really well but I don't know the book of the perfect storm
0: well great it is it is great check it out. It's nonfiction. it's non-fiction mm. but it reads like fiction and that's why I study it when I was trying to see like well how do they describe these huge you know things without all the like melodrama of emotion and so that's why I read it to try to uh, mimic that in in my writing of this.
2: Um, listen we don't want to keep Tom Cruise waiting I know he's next for you so I will disappear but uh, nobody is more thrilled for you than us too. honestly it's it's you know and especially knowing what you've gone through to get to this stage are, are you hard as nails you strike me as quite hard are you quite resilient
0: I'm I'm uh, my my skin is pretty thick at this point yeah. I'm still yeah. human but I've I've been knocked down enough that I I know how to get back up
2: well the book's called Drowning we loved it <laughs> And we'd love talking to you. And please come and see us next time. Book three, we want to do this face to face. Yes,
0: yeah. please. Yes, please. Song and dance numbers and all. That'd be amazing. TJ, thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. This is great.
2: I was just uh, thinking, listening back to that. It's a good job that we both did have colds, because you probably would have burst into the song otherwise, wouldn't you? I mean, there was a duet on the cards there. it?
1: <laughs> Well, I think there's some in my head, you know, obviously TJ is going to be way better a singer and dancer than I ever have been or will be because, you know, she tried out on Broadway. Yeah, she kind of yeah. went for this whole career, whereas I'm very much a, I would love to do that. But I just have you done have it at confidence. all? Did
2: you do the old? M-down yeah, thing?
1: I did like, um, I kind of went to uh, like Saturday classes and mm-hmm. like stage school type stuff when I was all through my teenage years. So I did, you know, tap and ballet and modern and singing and drama and I did all that and I loved it. Um, uh, Ultimately, I think too shy and scared to try it professionally. So, and also probably I'm not that good. So, I think that's the other thing in the background. So, here's a
2: question for you, right? Having Mm. read TJ's essay that you referred to in that podcast, Yeah. would that alleviate any of the fear for you?
1: What to like turn around and be? Yeah, is your desire to do
2: it? Do you think you could, could your desire overcome the fear that you have about doing it?
1: Uh, No, I think for that, I've left it way too late. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think that that is a dream anymore, but also, but I think it's, um, I think I am missing doing some of that as a hobby, which I would like to do more of. It's just quite difficult to try and find those things sometimes. But yeah, I think that that world is so, I mean, again, we didn't have time to talk to her about all of this, but that world is so brutal. I wouldn't want to put myself through that at all.
2: And at that point, Natalie mutes her microphone as she descends into a coughing fit. We told you we were struggling. This is, uh, we did this a couple of weeks back during half term. And I think what happens is when you've got kids is that they fight all the way through to the end of term and then they just collapse and bring all the school germs back to the house. When I was a kid, I'm sure it was just the school pet that we brought home for half term. But now I think it's all the germs (laughs) in the classroom. It is all the germs,
1: yeah. It's fun. Um, yeah. It was, has her essay made you realise or remember any dreams that you're not fulfilling?
2: It's just made me feel like I need to be as resilient as she is. Mm. I feel that sometimes I'm not, and I mm-hmm. think, um, yeah. That when I read that, I thought, yeah, there's a great line in it, which says, and I was going to quote it to her. It, it, she, she writes, I haven't come this far to only get this far. Yeah. And I think it's hard sometimes to cling on to that if the chips are down or going against you. But I think that's quite probably – I'm almost certain that's what defines those who achieve success from those who don't, is just tenacity, sticking it out.
1: Yeah, I think it's really difficult because I also think what we were talking about with TJ a little bit too is that you don't always have to want the big thing. So, you know, I've got a really good friend of mine who does a lot of – amateur dramatics locally and loves it gets so much out of that mm. um uh shamefully i haven't been to see her she could be like astounding and should be you know on a west end stage somewhere but it's almost as if the process and the doing it that's she gets so much out of doing that and loves it um
2: and that's what tj was saying about the first yeah. book wasn't it that when she was uh, 3 a.m. when she was in that print mm-hmm. shop and she had that manuscript and and I got the sense at that point, it didn't matter whether it got published or not. She'd actually fulfilled yeah. the dream just to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And I wonder I if guess... that's almost the better way to do it because then you remove the pressure from yourself to sell it. You go, well, mm-hmm. I've done what i set out to do. Anything else is a bonus.
1: And I guess this is where I would call into play, I think we spoke about this maybe way back in like series one, that there's a phrase in my household, which is, if you can't make a decision, if you've got two things in front of you, there's always mm-hmm. the Natalie option, which is that you do both of them.
2: Right. So. <laughs> Is that what people say?
1: Yeah, in my house, yeah. Yeah. If you, if there's that thing where like I'm all I'm like, there must be a way to do both of those things or to achieve both of that thing. Yeah. So yeah, do that.
2: Wow, that would make you out to be a great compromiser and a great kind of diplomat, but I'm not sure you are.
1: Yeah. Well funny you should say that. When I did that questionnaire, because it was obviously a bit um less sophisticated back in our day when we were at school. But yeah. did you have to fill in one of those questionnaires like at the school careers thing? You'd like read leaflets and then like, here's what career you're going to do. And mine came back as a diplomat. I'll have no. you. Know.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Wow. No, yeah. we never did that. I was never asked to fill that in.
1: Well, I never, I read it. and was like, I don't even know what a diplomat is.
2: <laughs> I'll tell you my only careers encounter at school. And I don't mind telling you this because I'm fairly confident that the teacher who said it isn't around now um but it was the head of six form who also taught me french and uh he said to me so you know what what are your plans what you're going to do and at that point i wanted to be a newspaper journalist that's what and i'd done some work experience on the local paper after gcse and had a piece printed on the front page and i've told you this story before and i said to the editor on the last day i knocked his door I asked to go and see him I said look thanks very much for the last two weeks of working i was 15 right and i said um can I ask you a question? And he said, yeah, what is it? I said, you know, the piece on the front page this morning, I said, did you put that on because it was my last day? And he just laughed. He roared back laughing. And he said, Phil, I'm running a newspaper, not a fucking charity. Off you go. And that was it. <laughs> that was the last sentence he said to me, right? And um, so I thought, okay, so I can clearly do this. And then fast forward to the careers chat. And and mm-hmm. um, he said, so what are you going to do? So I said, well, obviously, yeah, you know, I've had that front page story published by the local paper, so I'm going to pursue that. And he said, and if that doesn't work out for you? And I just thought, and I get it now. As a parent, I get it. He's yeah. trying to create – he's trying to say have options. That's what he's trying to say. But I interpreted that as pissing on my dreams. So I said, mm-hmm. well, if the worst comes to worst, I could always become a teacher. And it really riled him, <laughs> 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 which was its intention, by the way. But, yeah, yeah. I just – I mean, I think this we going back 30-odd years for us, aren't we? Mm. I'm hoping now that our children get much better careers advice and that if one of our four kids between us turned around and said to their teacher – I want to be on stage, I want to be a footballer, I want to go up into space or whatever, that they would give them the support to do that rather than go, okay, and what's your plan B?
1: Yeah, yeah. But also maybe, you know, again, bringing it full circle to what we're just talking about, maybe you can still pursue that as a career, but, you know, you might not be... Beckham or you know exactly. but it's okay you can play in this is where I have to pretend that I know anything about football you have to play in one of the other leagues where they're not on television as much and they don't earn as much money but it's still a very lovely life
2: well yeah 100% yeah yeah very well covered thanks
1: I was like I, I did start to watch that Wrexham uh program on Disney Plus, uh, yeah. and uh they had like a little tear thing of how the English football. Oh, yeah, yeah, the works, triangle. little triangle. Yeah. And I was like, what? I can't remember any of them. It did like... it crystallize
2: it for you? Was it like a really good explainer?
1: It was a really good explainer, yeah. yeah. I find
2: that was there for the domestic American audience.
1: It was also there for me. Brian <laughs> <And you,
2: yeah. laughs> Reynolds thought, wouldn't Natalie Jamison get this?
1: Yeah, I think that's what he did think. Yeah, I think that's why he put it in. So, fine. Um, thank you again for listening to this episode, which I always feel like we cover a lot of ground you never quite know where each episode is going to take you but hopefully it's always somewhere enjoyable
2: and if it takes you to oh, i can't believe i'm going to do this i'm going to do it <laughs> if it, it takes you to co slash bestsellers podcast to buy us a coffee then all the better that was quite a segue.